Good morning, church. Let us uh, open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. And this morning we're focusing our attention on verses 18 through 21. 18 through 21. Let us consider God's word this morning, listen attentively as he speaks to us through his written word. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. It was Christian, the main character in John Bennion's Pilgrim's Progress, who said, and I quote, I come from the city of destruction, And I'm going to Mount Zion. Believe it or not, I think those words are a much needed reminder for us this morning. We need to hear those words, and here's why. We are in this world, but we're only passing through. We are pilgrims looking for the celestial city. We are like Abraham, who looked for a better place. Therefore, our hearts and our affections should be placed up there where the Lord Jesus is. After all, brothers and sisters, we belong to a new humanity called the church. And our priorities and our pursuits are now to be determined by the Lord Jesus himself. Now, the Puritans were men who understood this truth and sought to live it out. In fact, it was J.I. Packer who said that the Puritans lived with what he called a pilgrim mentality. As such, they desired to be diligent and upright citizens of this world. But on the other hand, they strove to distance themselves from the world. And at times, this is a difficult balance to achieve. Bunyan correctly determined that the world is a vanity fair in which we are often enticed to be muddled into a certain pattern or to think in a certain way and to live in a certain manner. Remembering then that we are pilgrims, that this is not our final home, is of utmost importance because we tend to forget. We become very attached to this world. And at no other time do we see this more clearly than when the fate of a country, the fate of a nation is at stake during presidential elections. Undoubtedly, this was a very important week for this country and for the entire world. The events that unfolded and will continue to unfold on and after election day are extremely consequential 
I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that this has been one of the most consequential elections, at least in my lifetime. Tuesday was a very important day, and yet, and yet, in the midst of all these history-making, history-changing events, here we are. Here we are, persevering in our fellowship, singing to our God, opening his word, meditating on a few verses, ready to hear his voice. Ultimately, this morning, we're going to be reminded of the fact that even though we are in this world, we are not of this world. We are headed somewhere else. We are going to be reminded that the Christian life and the Christian calling do not change depending on who is the president. Nations rise. Nations fall. Presidents change. Political parties gain and lose control. None of those things remain. Yet the word of God remains and the calling of God upon our lives stands forever. So... In a world that seems to be pulling us in a thousand different directions. We are here to remember this morning what we are called to be and what we are called to do. We are here to be reminded by the Lord Jesus himself of one of the greatest questions you could ask about yourself at any moment in your life as a Christian. Do you know what that question is? What makes a question an important question? Or better yet, what makes a question to be one of the most important questions you could ask about someone? The most important question you could ask about anyone, but especially a self-professing Christian, is a question the answer to which has the greatest amount of consequence for their lives. The most important question you could ask about anyone is that question the answer to which determines the course of someone's life? What could that question be? What are some of the highly consequential questions the answer to which can determine the course of someone's life? If you could look at the person next to you or the person around, the people around you and had just a few seconds to ask one important question about them, what would that question be? Well, if you are a professing believer, a Christian, here's the question that the Apostle Paul is asking of you and of me today. And it is a question that I wonder how many of us have thought of in the last few weeks. I doubt this question has been in our thinking many times lately, but it is nonetheless one of the most important critical questions you could ask about yourself if you're a believer. You want to know what that question is? Here it is. Are you being filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you being filled with the Holy Spirit? I submit to you that the answer to this one question is determinative of everything else about your life. In fact, it is, it is possible that you came in here with many questions lingering in your head and many troubles weighing heavy on your heart. And I would suspect that many of your questions, many of your troubles have to do with practical issues, such as how to be a better wife or how to be an exemplary husband or how can I deal with this person or that difficulty or this particular sorrow. 
ultimately, my friend, if you are a professing Christian, the answer to all those questions bring us, brings us back to this central question. Are you being filled with the Holy Spirit? Let me ask you another question, since we're talking about questions. When was the last time that you asked yourself that question? Am I being filled with the Holy Spirit? To which you may say to me in reply, well, how in the world do you expect me to be thinking about the filling with the Spirit in such a chaotic world? Have you heard of something called Election Day? Yes, and that is precisely my point. This question is critical. On election day or any other day of your life, because it is, without question, the most critical question about you. Brothers and sisters, I must, I must say that it is imperative that we develop what the Puritans had, namely a pilgrim mentality. And it all begins with this question. Are we being filled with the Holy Spirit? So this morning, we are going to consider three questions surrounding the issue of the filling with the Spirit. We will ask three questions of these verses, and then we'll finish by drawing a few practical conclusions. So here's the first question we must ask of this important topic. The obvious question. What does it mean? to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Let me first remind you of the nature of the Spirit. Who is he? Well, the Spirit is a he, not an it. I've, I've said this before in other occasions. He's not an impersonal force. The Spirit is the third person of the blessed Trinity, the Spirit has a personality, He has a mind, He has a will. He acts and He thinks just like the Father and the Son do. Therefore, at a basic level, at a basic level, to be filled with the Spirit means that He, the person of the Spirit, as a living person, desires an intimate relationship with believers, with Christians, with you and I. To be filled with the Spirit means at a basic level that He loves us. That the Spirit of God loves us. But this is a general sense of what this means. Let's get into the specifics. In verse 18. Let's read verse 18 once again. And do not get drunk with wine, for that, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul explains the specifics of what it means to be filled with the Spirit by establishing a contrast. A contrast. And this contrast is critical to our understanding of what this actually means. To what does Paul contrast the filling with the Spirit? To drunkenness. Being drunk. Interesting. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, the Bible has plenty to say about drunkenness, especially in the wisdom literature. Now, this reminds us that we have entered into the wisdom section of the book of Ephesians. We, we must keep that in mind as we seek to understand the meaning of Paul's words. In fact, I want to show you in the Bible how the Bible speaks of both drunkenness and wisdom. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 20. 
Proverbs chapter 20. Once again, this is wisdom literature. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Listen to how the writer speaks of wine and wisdom. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not what? Is not wise. Is not wise. The NASB version of the Bible says whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Notice how the the writer makes a direct connection between the influence of wine and lack of wisdom. The greater the influence of wine, the less the possibility of wisdom. Now turn a few pages to Proverbs 23. I want to show you something else. Proverbs 23, and I want to begin reading in verse 29 through verse 33. Who has a woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. Things. Notice verse 33. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. The influence of wine, says the writer, makes you behave foolishly, which is the opposite of wisdom, which brings us to the point Paul is making. This is a matter of influence. This is a matter of control. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul uses the issue of drunkenness to express the same idea. Drunkenness, of course, was a widespread problem in Ephesus. Even though uh, their wine and their strong drink would have been less strong than what you can find today pretty much anywhere. This was a widespread problem. During the time in which Paul was writing his letter, there was an idea, a very evil idea, that drunkenness was the way to connect with the gods. There was a famous cult in Ephesus called, uh, to a god called Dionysus, also known as Bacchus, Bacchus, in which drunkenness was encouraged in this cult as the means by which to have a closer encounter with the god. And it normally led to orgies. But beyond this, drunkenness was a problem in the city of Ephesus. So Paul knew this needed to be addressed. It is likely some of the Ephesians were either still dealing with the remnants of this false religion or were inclined to heavy drinking. And Paul simply says, stop. But I believe that there is more to be gained from these words. I want to make the case that this could apply to more than simply alcoholic beverages and the influence that they can have over our thinking. There's more going on here. Now, we understand that alcohol can be an enemy to wisdom. But I think Paul means more. I want you to consider with me back in Ephesians 5, the word that Paul uses 
to describe the influence of excessive wine. What is the word? Debauchery. Debauchery. That is an interesting word. That word could be translated as abandonment. It means to let yourself go, to lose your senses. In fact, the word debauchery could even be translated, listen to this, as prodigality, which means wastefulness and excessiveness. Prodigality. Does that remind you of something? Well, it reminds us of the parable of the prodigal son as told by our Lord in Luke chapter 15. In his parable of the prodigal son, the Lord tells us and describes the prodigal son this way. He squandered his property in reckless living. The word reckless is the same as the word debauchery. Now consider this important truth. When the time of repentance came for the prodigal son, the Lord used these words to describe the moment. He said this, but when he came to himself, which means that debauchery, his prodigality was expressed primarily in the fact that he allowed himself to be influenced by his fleshly desires. This is more just than just alcohol. Recklessness can happen anytime something other than the spirit gains dominance over your life. So as a general principle, we must be careful what we allow ourselves to be influenced by. Now, with that in the back of our minds, let me give you the meaning of being filled with the spirit. In light of Paul's contrast, we can determine that to be filled with the spirit is this. To be constantly growing in our desire and willingness to submit to the Spirit's prerogative to direct and rule over our entire lives. Let me say that again. To be filled with the Spirit is to be constantly growing in our desire and willingness to submit to the Spirit's prerogative to direct and rule over our entire lives. In other words, to be filled with the spirit is more than just to know the dwelling of the spirit within us. To be filled with the spirit is to conform my thinking, my speaking, my choosing, and my entire being to the spirit's authority, which he exercises through his word and through prayer. So that is then the meaning of Paul's command to be filled with the spirit. But having answered the question, what does it mean? We need to move on to the second question, just as important. What is the second question we must ask? Well, how are we filled with the Spirit? How are we filled with the Spirit? Notice with me that this is a command. It is written as an imperative. Be filled with the Spirit. So the question then is, how are we to be filled with the Spirit? Before we answer that question, let me ask you another question. We're doing a lot of questions today. Here's another question. Let me ask you this about the text. Do you think the text itself answers the question of how? Or are we left here to be creative? Whatever we want. 
The spoils tell us how we are supposed to grow in our desire and willingness to submit to the Spirit's prerogative. Well, certainly we don't want to be creative here. That would be a dangerous place to be. I believe Paul answers the question, how to be filled with the Spirit. Where does he answer the question? In verses 19, 20, and 21. 19, 20, and 21. Let me read it again. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to argue this morning that the actions Paul mentions in verses 19, 20, and 21 are not the result of being filled with the Spirit, but the means by which we are filled with the Spirit. Paul is answering the how-to question. Now, I remember that for many years when I came across these verses, I thought of them as very mysterious. Now I realize that Paul is actually removing the mystery out of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And he's giving us clear direction as to what this means and how it is to be done. There are basically four actions in which we must engage in order to be filled with the Spirit. How do we identify those actions? Well, consider the way they are written. They are all present participles. Does that help? They're all present participles which means they all have the ing ending. Those are the actions. Four. Number one, in verse 19, the first half of verse 19, addressing each other. That is the first action. The second action is in the second half of verse 19, making melody to the Lord from the heart. The third action in verse 20 is giving thanks. And then the fourth action in verse 21, submitting to one another. Paul's point is this, as we do these things, as we engage in these things, in these actions, we are filled with the Spirit. Let me show you a parallel account that will confirm this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. We'll read it very, very quickly. Colossians 3, 16. It's a parallel verse. Listen to the words of Paul. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the Spirit Dwell in you, he says. Let, let the Spirit fill you. And then in Colossians, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That is the parallel account. How do we read Colossians 3.16? How is the word of God to dwell in us richly? By teaching, by admonishing one another. So those are the means by which we let the word of God dwell in us richly. It's the same thing here happening in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. So let me give you the first action in which we must engage for the spirit to fill us. Here's letter A, praiseful fellowship. Praiseful fellowship. If we will be filled with the spirit and grow in our desire and willingness to submit and yield to his prerogative to guide us and to rule over our lives, we must first engage in praiseful fellowship. We must address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
Now, before I say anything else, let me tell you what Paul is not saying here. He is not saying that every Sunday as we gather together in the church, we must come and pretend like we are all participants in a Christian musical. That's what I used to think growing up. But that's a relief to know that that's not what he meant. Believe it or not, growing up, this is what I thought Paul meant. I thought, well, I guess we need to sing all the stuff we say. Brothers and sisters, personally, I love music, but I have never been super big into musicals. I just don't like the idea of having someone sing everything they say to me <laughs> or me singing everything I say to other people. I would probably go insane very quickly. What Paul is saying, however, is that in our gatherings, as the people of God, our praises do have a horizontal dimension to them. What do I mean by that? I mean to say that when we come together in corporate worship, on many occasions, we do engage in praiseful fellowship in the sense that through singing and through responsive readings, we encourage one another in the truth. And that is often the case when we sing declarations like, he will hold me fast for my savior loves me. So he will hold me fast. I remember that uh, during Chewie's funeral, we sang that song. And as we were singing that song, I prayed several times, Lord, impress this truth upon Manuela's mind. Bring her comfort. This is praiseful fellowship. Many times we will sing songs that will minister to us by reminding us of the truths that we confess. This is the horizontal dimension of our corporate worship. And Paul says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs should be used. Don't we sometimes speak psalms to each other in responsive ways as we just did a few moments ago? That is what Paul has in mind. We lift each other up as we speak and sing biblical truths to one another. And this is one of the means that the Spirit uses to fill us in greater measure. So let me ask you a very important question. When we sing together, when we come together and gather in corporate worship, is your mind engaged in what we're saying? Such an important part. My brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the importance of praiseful fellowship in your life. It is through these times that the Spirit strengthens our bond of unity as we encourage one another in the truth. Letter B. Letter B. God-centric worship. God-centric worship. Paul says, secondly, that in order to be filled with the Spirit, we must sing and make melody to the Lord in our hearts. This is, of course, the vertical aspect of our worship, where our thoughts and our affections are directed exclusively to the Lord and to the Lord alone. This is another means by which we are filled with the Spirit. As our hearts are lifted up into the presence of the Lord, the Spirit creates a greater longing, a greater dependence, and a greater love for for God. So practically speaking, our worship should always include psalms and hymns as spiritual songs are highly God-centric. Songs that emphasize the holiness of God, the justice of God, the beauty of God, and the glory of God, and the power of God. That's the second action. The third, letter C, comprehensive thanksgiving. Comprehensive thanksgiving. This is the third participle on this list. And it has to do with gratitude. Paul says that if we will be filled with the Spirit, 
We must see thanksgiving in our lives as a priority. Notice how our thanksgiving must be both constant, for it must be always be on our lips, and also comprehensive, for it includes everything. Isn't that a strange thing to say? It's, it's a little strange that Paul would say, in verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God. For everything. Isn't that a rather strange thing to say? Are we really to be thankful always and for everything? What about evil in the world? What about tragedy in our lives? How can we be thankful for those things? Did Paul really mean to be grateful and thankful in everything? What does Paul mean? Well, I believe the answer lies in the object of our thanksgiving, namely God the Father. God the Father. How is God the Father the answer? He is the answer because the character of our heavenly Father is always good and always just. It never changes. No amount of evil in this world, no depth of tragedy in our lives can change the goodness of our Father. And therefore, because God our Father is good, all things are useful in his hands for the spiritual benefit of his church. Brothers and sisters, don't ever let evil, tragedy, or deep sorrow to prevent you from always giving thanks to the Father, for he always is good. He's always good. And finally, the, four, the fourth action, the fourth participle, relational humility. Paul said, in order to be filled with the Spirit, we must submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me be clear as to what Paul is not saying. Paul is not denying that the church has leaders, men rightfully called to lead and exercise biblical authority over the congregation. Neither is Paul denying that there are distinct roles within the congregational life. For instance, in a counseling situation, the person being counseled is receiving counseling for the purpose of submitting to what he's listening. So there are distinctions in role. And Paul is not denying any of this. What Paul is saying, however, is that everyone in the church is called to exercise humility, which is essential for keeping the unity, as we saw in chapter 4, verse 2. In essence, what Paul is saying is what we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And we will enter into that dynamic a little more when we reach verses 22 and following. So those are the four participles. Now, let's ask a third question, and we'll keep this brief. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? What does it look like? How do you know that you are being filled with the Spirit? Well, the answer is actually rather simple, direct. It looks like a Christ-exalting life. A Christ-exalting life. The greater the feeling with the Spirit in our life, the more Christ will be exalted 
in our lives. For what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? To exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see how the filling with the Spirit always leads to the Lord? Always. Go back to verse 17. Paul says that we must understand the will of the Lord. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 19, we are to make melody to whom? The Lord. In verse 20, we are to give thanks to the Father in the name of our Lord. And in verse 21, we must submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord. These are all references to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is this? Well, it is this way because the Spirit's greatest work in our lives is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. The greater the filling of the Spirit, the greater the exaltation of Christ will be in your life. And he will become more and more and more central to you. It will be more about him, less about you. So as the Spirit of God fills us, we are led to greater obedience to Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Holy Spirit conforms us into the image of the Son, the Lord. Let me finish by drawing a few practical conclusions. A few practical conclusions. Number one, the church is essential. The church is essential. The filling with the Spirit is meant to happen within the context of the local church. Did you notice that? It's all over the place. In other words, we are filled with the Spirit as individuals only as we engage in the corporate life of the church. This is how the Puritans thought. I read a very helpful paragraph uh, out of a book written by Joel Bickey in which he brings the book of Ephesians and the Puritans together. And this is what he says, and I quote, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians abundantly, abundantly justifies the Puritan conviction that no Christian is called to be a lone ranger for God. We are born again into a church family. We were made for fellowship and we are to live in fellowship. Believers are to identify with the church and become part of the church, bending their prayers and efforts to advancing the well-being of the church in every way for the church is the center of the purposes of God. End quote. I love that. Notice that civil government is not the center of the purposes of God. Presidents are not the center of the purposes of God. Neither are nations the center of the purposes of God. Only the church of Jesus Christ is the center of the purposes of God. This further means that God will never abandon his church. Never abandon his church. We must persevere in seeking the presence of the spirit in submission to his leading and authority over us. Let me put it this way, okay? Let me put it this way. What we do and what happens here in the church and what we do as Christians is more important than what happens in the political world. Yep, we need to remember this. What happens here, what we do here, 
what takes place in your life as you are being filled with the Spirit, all those things are more important than anything that could happen in the political world. We are a testimony to the glory of God. No nation can say that. No political party can say that. Only the church can say we are a testimony to the glory and the grace and the power of God. As we are filled with the Spirit, the world can see the glory of God. Second, consider this conclusion here. We are loved by the Trinity. We are loved by the Trinity in one of the most astonishing and beautiful promises ever to be pronounced by our Lord Jesus, we hear these words in John chapter 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, meaning the father and I, will come to him and make our home with him. You know how that was fulfilled? In the coming of the Holy Spirit. Both Jesus and the father are now dwelling in you. We're loved by the Trinity. And finally, we are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. My dear brothers and sisters, don't ever forget. Don't ever forget. Don't ever allow yourself to forget that you are first and foremost a child of God the temple of his holy presence, the one upon whom and in whom he dwells in and through the spirit. God no longer dwells in physical structures or specific places. God now fills a people called the church. Nothing is more important about you than this. You're the temple of the living God. This is the single, the one spiritual reality that now defines who you are. There's nothing else. You're the temple of the living God, and the Spirit now dwells in you. Let us make much of the Lord Jesus Christ as we continue to be filled with the Spirit. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for reminding us of this truth. As always, I know that this was not a, a perfect, by any means, presentation or a perfect sermon that there was so much more to be said but I pray that you will use it to bring in our lives greater conformity to the Lord Jesus and now as we sing together as we respond together help us to continue in our praiseful fellowship reminding each other of the truths that we believe and of the greatness and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.